We're looking this morning at the subject of a traitor in the camp. And of course, we're talking about Judas. And the first thing we learn about him, if you look at your bulletin outline there, he was in the group, but not of the group. In the early chapters of the Gospel accounts, we see Jesus, a Nazarene, living in the region of the Galilee, and he's traveling the countryside and extending his call to various men to become one of his disciples. For example, Matthew 4, verse 18 and following, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net before the, in, into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew 4, verse 18 through 22. This is in itself quite miraculous, isn't it? Somebody go come along the seashore and say, Hey, you, come follow me. Leave your nets, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they do it immediately. Well, who are you? No, there's no questioning. They just do. John 1 verse 40 indicates that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist before Jesus called him, and his first response was to tell uh, Peter the good news that he had found the Messiah. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. John chapter 1, verse 43 through 45. As Jesus went on from there, and there, here the context is the healing of the man that was let down through the roof in front of him, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Matthew 9, verse 9 and 10. And then just before Jesus gave that wonderful Sermon on the Mount that we have in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospels as well, only abbreviated in those places, Luke tells us that the roster of 12 disciples was complete. Let me read it for you. One of those days, Jesus went out to the main side, mountainside excuse me, to pray, and he spent the night in prayer. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designate as apostles or sent out ones. And then he lists them. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. 
And a large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. Luke 6, verse 12 through 17. So by the time the Sermon on the Mount, the twelve, the inner twelve, had all been chosen and brought into the circle. There were other disciples, so you know, it talks about other disciples being there, but he makes a distinction. What I want you to observe is that Judas Iscariot, by the way, the name Iscariot means from the region of Kerioth. So Judith, uh, Judas from Kerioth, Judas Iscariot, is listed, but we have no specific text which tells us just how Judas was called into the group. The only thing we have is Jesus' statement in John 6, verse 64, Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples, now not the twelve, but the larger group, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Now it's interesting that every time the gospel writers record Judas' name, this Judas, they add some comment to the fact that he was the one who betrayed Jesus. They did not always know this. They certainly had no suspicion of Judas' nefarious activities. But when his treachery became obvious, they made it a matter of record to note his betrayal whenever his name was mentioned in their histories. Oh, just in case you don't know, this is Judas the traitor. And they put it down. There's another Judas you see in the group, and that's part of how they distinguish. Now, quite obviously, Jesus was not in the dark about Judas. He called him a devil. Diabolos is the Greek word. It's a name for Satan. It means the slanderer, the accuser. He also called him the son of perdition, King James. And Ivy says the one doomed to destruction, which is the idea of the word. Why would he say that? I know whom I... I am not referring to you all when he said the, the scriptures... Uh, were going to be fulfilled. What scriptures? Well, I know that you are refer not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread, and we read this, Psalm 41, verse 9, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. John 13, verse 18. And he was referring to that Old Testament prophecy, Psalm 41, verse 9. So, Judas is part of the twelve. Wherever the eleven go, Judas goes. Whatever they do, he does. And the disciples have no clue as to this man's treachery. And that's the second point in your bulletin outline there. What are some of the telltale signs that Judas operated undetected among the disciples? Well, number one... He was commissioned by Jesus, just like all the rest of the eleven, to preach 
and heal. Matthew 10, verse 1 and following. He called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. And it begins with Peter, goes through the list. But verse 4 lists Judas last on the list. He's there. These 12, I'm reading scripture, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Matthew 10, verse 1 following. Now Luke tells us on another occasion, Luke 10, verse 1 and following, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Verse 17 and following. The 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, now listen to this statement. However, says Jesus, do not rejoice. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10, 17 through 20. That's a key, key statement. Don't rejoice that when you command demons to come out of people, they obey you. What you need to rejoice about is that your name is written in heaven. He's saying something to this effect. Is your name written in heaven? That's where you need to be thinking about rejoicing. There is a difference, and we're going to see it, between the power to do miracles and being saved. There is no indication here that Judas was exempted from this empowerment. He was part of the preaching campaign, and he was part of the miracles. He saw it all, may I say, he did it all. There is no record stated that any of the disciples ever accused him of not preaching or of not performing the miraculous. No, he blended right in. Can I say it that way? He blended right in with the group. He preached the message Jesus instructed for all of his disciples. And as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew 11, verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So you see, in a sense, these disciples... We're doing a similar uh, ministry of John the Baptist and preparing people to hear from Christ directly. And Judas was part of that preparation. But you ask, how could Judas perform the miraculous? And especially exorcism of demons, which was part of Jesus' original charge. Again, chapter 10, Matthew, verse 5, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority 
to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Matthew 10, verse 1. I want you to learn here that the ability to perform the miraculous is not necessarily a sign of a righteous life. It's not. In Matthew 7, verse 22, Jesus made it clear that miracle-working ability is not always a sign of true fidelity to Christ. Here's the text. Many will say to me on that day, what day? Judgment day. Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Did we do that, Lord? Hey, you got to admit. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Can an evil doer perform the miraculous? That's a good question. During Jesus' ministry, he often exercised demons in those who were possessed. And when the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing so by the power of Beelzebub, which is one of the biblical names for Satan, another one, Jesus' response is very significant. Here's what he says. Now they're accusing him. They're saying, well, you know, you cast out demons by the power of the devil. Listen to his logic and how how truthful this is. Jesus says, if Satan is divided against himself, think about this. How can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. Luke 11, verse 18 and 19. So the disciples here of the Pharisees who were part of the plot to destroy Jesus also cast out demons and not by Satan's power else Satan would be fighting against himself since the demons are a part of his brotherhood. Think about it. Is he going to go against his own brotherhood? His own kingdom? So here Judas is doing the same. And again, we are told in his case that he did not do So by the power of Satan, but as we read of Jesus' commission, he called his twelve disciples to him, and he, Jesus, gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Matthew 10, verse 1. Now here's the mystery. Judas had to know that in himself he had no power to do these things. He was endued by God to serve as a disciple. But he also had to know, as should we, that there was no love in his heart for Jesus. The disciples did not know this, but Jesus did. So he's able to do the miraculous by Jesus' empowerment. What about Judas participating in preaching? Did he really promote a message of truth when his own heart was bent on lies and deception and eventual betrayal? After the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus, John tells us, 
Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish council. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man, they're referring to Jesus, here is this man performing miracle signs. John 11, verse 47. What are they saying? Well, they were lamenting the fact that they were losing in the popularity department while Jesus and his disciples were gaining in the popularity department. And so they get this council together. They say, what are we doing? What are we accomplishing? We're doing nothing here. This man just moan us down. He just keeps growing. His following keeps getting bigger and ours keeps shrinking. Now listen to this. Then one of them, called Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, that's you and me, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. John 11, verse 49 through 53. In John 18, verse 14, the apostle notes that in the pretrial of Jesus after he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, He was brought before this very same Caiaphas for interrogation. Matthew tells us, Early in the morning all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Matthew 27, verse 1 and 2. So Caiaphas proved to be an enemy of Christ. An enemy of Christ. He accused Jesus of blasphemy. He secured the death vote from the Jewish council and their decision to ship him off to Pilate for sentencing because Pilate was the Roman authority, the Roman governor. And yet, this enemy of God, this enemy of God, truthfully prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation of Israel and for all the scattered children of God to bring us together as one that is in his church. Let me put it this way. God can and he does use evil men at times to preach the truth. That's the scary part. It really stretches us to be discerning. Because there are many preachers using God words today. And we hear the God words and we say, well, He's talking about Jesus and he talks about a cross and he talks about a resurrection. And God can preach through evil men. And this, I believe, was Judas on this campaign where Jesus sent them. When the disciples went out, Judas went right along and none, none of his fellow disciples suspected anything devious in his heart. Scary, isn't it? Number two, 
Judas' greed and his love for money never surfaced until after his betrayal was well known. How do we know this? Well, there was an incident at Bethany. Let me read it for you. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It is worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared anything about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. John 12, 1 through 1 and following. Now if you just read this text, if you just read this text in John, it appears that Judas has been found out that he has been exposed for the greedy man that he is. But this is not the case. John wrote his gospel account in about 95 A.D., long after the other apostles, Peter, James, and all the rest, even Paul, had died a martyr's death. So from his vantage point in history, he could name Judas as a thief, he could name him as one who pilfered money from the money bag of which he was in charge. And it also appears as though Judas was not alone in his objections to this wasteful extravagance of the perfume. Say, how do you know that? Well, fortunately, we have another gospel account which fills in some of the details. The dinner, while in Bethany, was hosted in the house of a convert called Simon the leper. Let me read it for you. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman, now John tells us who the woman was, it was Mary, Martha's sister, came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke this jar and poured the perfume on his head. John's account says feet. She poured it on his feet. Mark 14, verse 8, Jesus says, he poured it, she poured it on my body. So there's no contradiction. Head, feet. She poured it all over him. That's the point. Now listen to this. Some of those present, that's more than Judas, isn't it? Some of those present were saying indignantly, indignantly to one another, why this waste of the perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. 
And they, plural, not just Judas, they rebuked her. Matthew 26, verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. The disciples, plural. When they saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Mark 14, verses 3 through 10. See, one of the ways you study the scripture is you can't just read one text and say, I got the whole story. You've got to compare scripture with scripture. You've got to read them all. And you've got to see how they're pieced together. And you begin to see the full picture of what is going on. And what we discover here from Matthew and Mark's account is that Judas was not alone in objecting to this lavish anointing of Jesus by Mary. And so, and this is my point, Judas' greed does not surface here. It doesn't. His objection to this waste of money just blends in with all the rest that are saying the same thing. We have to wait until John's record to learn that Judas had no real love for the poor like the other disciples and that his real intent was to get his hands on the money that the perfume represented had Mary not wasted it on Jesus. That money would have gone into the bag that he carried. And John says, yeah, he used to help himself to what was ever in the bag. Now we're getting to see a picture here of this man. I think there the similarity ended. The eleven really thought about the poor. And they really thought, well, this money could have helped the poor. Judas was looking out for his own profit. All of them had missed the point. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you won't always have me. John, or Mark 14, verse 7. Three verses later in Mark's record, verse 10 reads, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Matthew's account says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. Clink, 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 clink. Matthew 26, 14 and 15. Betrayal, brethren, always has a payment. It can be a favor done. It can be a position of prestige granted. It can be silence about some indiscretion or crime. Well, kind of like a blackmail. But more often than not, it's money. Money. Judas, incognito, behind closed doors, sold Jesus out for the price of 
of an ordinary slave. You can read about that in Exodus 21:32, Zechariah 11, verse 13. The disciples never suspected such. Never. He just blended right in. It's a little warm in here. Open those back windows and get some air movement. Number three. Get this, he was never, Judas was never suspected even when Jesus announced that a traitor was among the group of twelve. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he was celebrating the Passover with the disciples and after that dinner, Jesus rose from the table, he stripped to his loincloth, he began to wash the disciples' feet one by one and he explained, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said, not every one of you. John 13, verse 10, 11. That's John's commentary on Jesus' statement. As the evening progressed, verse 21 says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scriptures. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And that's that quote from Psalm 41, verse 9. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. John 13, verse 18 and following. Peter nudged John to ask Jesus, who's he talking about? To which Jesus replied, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And he dipped it in the dish and he gave it to Judas Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Here's the chief conspirator himself taking the reins. What you are about to do, says Jesus, do it quickly. And as soon as Jesus, excuse me, as soon as Judas took the bread, he went out and it was night. John 13, verse 26. It's important to know that when Jesus announced a traitor among the group, no one, no one, not John, not Peter, not Bartholomew, not James the uh, Lesser, none of them stood up and said, I know who it is, it's Judas. It didn't happen. They they just stared at Jesus with a blank look. They're in in shock. The scripture says they were at a loss to know which of them he meant. What about Judas' quick exit from the room after a little chit-chat with Jesus? What you do, do quickly. Well, John tells us how they viewed that. John writes, No one at the meal understood why Jesus said that to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, they thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the poor or to give something to the poor. 
John 13, verse 28. You see, they're, they're still thinking the best. They're not thinking evil of Judas. Oh, God's, uh, Jesus has sent him on a mission of mercy. They were so totally in the dark about Judas' treachery that both Matthew and Mark's records say they, the disciples, were very sad. And they began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Matthew 26, verse 12. And then Judas, listen to this hypocrisy. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, and I think rather privately and rather quietly, Yes, it is you. Matthew 26, verse 25. So when he leaves the group, the other disciples looking on just think he's going on a mission of mercy that Jesus has assigned him some task. They have no clue. He fit in. He blended. He played the role of a disciple. Now let me suggest a couple lessons for the heart. Number one, don't be duped by religious charlatans. Don't be duped by religious charlatans. Has God given to his church pastors and teachers? Should we be involved in the church, the body of Christ? Absolutely. It's his body and we need to be involved. And yes, he has given pastors, teachers, evangelists. They're all listed for you there in Ephesians chapter 2. And we learned last week that the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, all official ministers of the Jewish faith, in one capacity or another, nonetheless, they were hypocrites whom Jesus not only denounced again and again, but he warned his disciples, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Matthew 23, verse 3. Boy, there's a lot of that going on, especially on the airwaves today. They looked the part. I mean, they dressed the part with their clerical robes. They spoke the part using Christian lingo. They played the part giving money to the cause, praying on the street corners where everybody see them praying. They championed a monotheistic doctrine of God in opposition to Rome's pluralistic idolatry. But Jesus taught that they were children of hell. Children of hell. And today we learn that Judas, who was in Jesus' own inner circle of twelve, was nonetheless the son of perdition. He too was a child of hell, who himself was possessed by Satan to empower, to promote the betrayal of God's son. John 18 even records this, so Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches and letters and weapons, weapons. Jesus, knowing that all was going to happen, went out and asked them, Who it is that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. John 18, verses 3 through 4. Betrayals are found in all walks of life. But when a professing brother or sister in the faith is the agent, no wonder we read, Jesus was troubled in spirit and said, one of you is going to betray me. You and I are not omniscient. 
We cannot read men's hearts. But Jesus taught us, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. See, they look the part. But inwardly, they are they're ferocious wolves. Matthew 7, verse 15. Or again, Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. Matthew 24, verse 4. Or again, be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Mark 8, verse 15. The Pharisees stand for the religious leaders of the day and Herod stands for the political leaders of the day. And Jesus is saying, Don't trust either with a blind faith. You, have an, you and I have an obligation to be discerning. How are we discerning? By their fruits you shall know them. We taught that last week. Do a little fruit inspection and see how they're living, not just what they're saying. That's the first lesson. Lesson two. Miracle working powers do not prove genuine righteousness. This is really scary. So when people stand before Christ in the day of judgment, boasting of their achievements as preachers of the gospel, healing of the sick, the ability to cast out demons in Jesus' name, as they will do, Matthew 7, verse 22, we read it earlier, I want you to remember Judas. I want you to remember the disciples of the Pharisees who could and did the same things. I want you to remember Jesus' verdict. I never knew you. Away from me. That is, be gone, you evildoers. John 7, verse 23. You think this commends you because you can do the miraculous. I'm saying you're evildoers. Get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. I never knew you. And you will say, or they will say, but I have have Christian pedigree. (laughs) My grandparents were all churchgoers and and they set a good example, uh, which I have tried to follow. Listen to John the Baptist's answer. This is classic. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Matthew 3, verse 9. And in the previous verse, verse 8, John gives this validating measuring rod of true faith and salvation in Christ. He speaks to these wicked Pharisees that he called a brood of snakes, a brood of vipers. Here's the validation. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3, verse 8. What he is saying here is, until there's a change in your life and how you live your life, Don't go around saying, well, I know God. Well, I believe in God. My granddaddy was a Christian. I'm a Christian. It doesn't come through bloodlines like that. In John 3, the baptizer gave this testimony. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John 3, verse 36. Well, that's the truth. Spiritual fruit in your life that shows you have really repented of your sin, faith in Jesus' grace as the sole strength of your repentance and the salvation that he gives to you. Stop looking for a miracle. 
Rather look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Miss him, you lose it all. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number. He shared in this ministry. With a reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. Remember, he returned the 30 pieces of silver. And the Pharisees said, well, well boy, we, this is blood money. We can't put this back into God's treasury. Can't put this back in the offering plate. That wouldn't be right. So they bought a field with Judas returned 30 pieces. And that's what he's alluding to here. With a reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. And there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. Because you see, he went out and hung himself there. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, says Peter. So they called that field in their language, academia, that is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of the psalm, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Acts 1. Verses 15 through 20. That's Judas' end. That's his end. And yet, Peter says, he was one of us. He was part of this ministry. He did everything we did. He was a devil in disguise. What about you this morning? Is there true faith in your life? True repentance of your sins towards God in Christ? Are you living new, a new life? Peter says, you have lived long enough in the past. And he lists all the wickedness of their sins. When we come a, become a Christian, Christ comes into our hearts and he changes us. And we live as new people in him, empowered by his spirit. This never happened to Judas. But he looked the part, he played the part, he spoke the part, he did the part. And all the disciples that were with him in the twelve never suspected a thing. Is that, is that the measure of salvation that we can trick people into thinking we're Christian? Is that what we are all about? <laughs> pulled one over on them. Yeah, Judas did that. He pulled it over on the eleven. went to hell as the son of perdition. I want that for no one here. Lord Jesus, grant to us your faith, real faith in you and real repentance. Lest by our wickedness we deceive ourselves into thinking because we're church people, thinking because we know God words, we know a Bible verse or two, or maybe even that we can do something stupendous like Judas was able to do. Preach for you and do miracles for you. And we use that as our measuring rod where Jesus says, no, 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 no. The measuring rod is righteousness and you don't have it. Depart from me, you who are workers, workers of iniquity. You wicked people. 
Judas did all that looked like a Christian, but failed in that very area. Lord, you have saved us to become like you. The work of sanctification is to make us like you. I pray that you'll do that. And if there's one here this morning who doesn't know you, may this be the day that you find them. Remove the sham, the robes, the, the, the facade that makes them look like a Christian. Grant them that repentance that's unto life for the glory of Jesus, for the extension of his kingdom, and for their own, own good. Amen. Closing hymn.